no matter where we're at in life, no matter what we're doing, we're all one question away from a completely different path. But just noticing where you've come from and where you're heading. And that gives you the pause and the opportunity to course correct if you want or write the new chapter and give us the opportunity to pick a different path. Injecting those moments, those micro moments, I I should say, of play and excitement, they go so far. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realize there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. There are so many people without whom this show would not have been possible, but this guest in particular really pushed me forwards at the pivotal moment where I could have backed out. We connected a few years ago when I jumped on his own incredible show, Behind the Human, for one of my very first ever podcast interviews, and a few months later, it was Mark who I turned to when I wanted to start my own show. Back then, he was about the only person I even knew with their own podcast, and I still can't believe how instantly and generously he shared the details of his gear, software, reaching out to guests and everything in between about bringing a podcast to life. And what an absolute privilege years later now to at least begin to repay the favour by sharing the exciting news about his brand new book, Personal Socrates. Although I don't really know if I'm repaying him a favor. I think he's doing me another one by sharing his incredible wisdom on the show. Mark Champagne has one of those fascinating stories that begins with a whole decade in an area that now I can't even imagine him in, (laughs) doing corporate sales and brand management for pharmaceutical and biotech companies. His side passion for photography was the first inclination of a possible career shift, building from self-taught newbie to even joining Photographers Without Borders on a trip from his native Canada to Senegal. But it was through his groundbreaking journaling and mental fitness app, Keo, that I first met Mark, which saw incredible success building up to 86.9 million impressions on Apple until the day he decided to delete it. And now he's a brand new author helping us ask bigger and better questions to upgrade our lives just at the perfect time for World Mental Health Month. I'm not sure if it's his Canadian background or not, but you'll hear instantly what a genuine and kind soul Mark is. And his book is exactly the handbook to happiness and mental fitness that we all need as we continue to navigate so much uncertainty and change. I hope you get as much out of him as I did. Mark Champagne, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. It's a honor to be here. I am so, so excited about this. Firstly, because I haven't seen you in so long. Secondly, because I'm so thrilled about your incredible new book. But thirdly, because, and I saved this until we pressed record because we've been talking for about 20 minutes because that's how excited I am to see you. (laughs) But for anyone who doesn't already know this, and I actually don't think I've shared this before, back when I had the idea for Seize the A three years ago, I think it was, I had been on Mark's incredible podcast, which we'll talk about, 
And it was one of the very first podcast interviews I'd ever done and I enjoyed it so much. And a couple of months later, I had the idea of, oh, you know, I've told this story before. I wanted to have more conversations in a longer kind of forum, but I didn't know anything about podcasts. And I always say that in the moment of self-doubt, you have to go to the right person and someone can either tip you away from that dream or tip you towards it. And I went back and looked in advance of this conversation at the email that I sent you being like, we've only, we've never met in person. I've only just, you know, we've had one conversation, but you're the nicest person and I love your energy, but also can I please ask you a favor? Can you tell me every single thing you know about podcasts? Cause I want to start one and ex- fully expecting you to be like, oh, you know, I don't know, go to Apple podcasts or Google it. Mark sent back the most detailed, thoughtful, kind explanation of microphones and platforms and where it lives and how Apple Podcasts goes, like all this stuff I'd never heard of. And you are the reason this podcast exists. And I will never be able to thank you for that. Well, you're, I mean, I'm almost teary-eyed. Thank you so much for for saying that. I, I forgot about that email, actually. And I actually can't believe that that was one of the, my show was one of the first podcasts you've done because you're, I mean, you're so natural at it. So I'm, I'm not surprised that you have your own show and it's rocking because you've definitely found one of your callings when it comes to interviews and whatnot. I know you're doing a ton of different things, but I hope you're enjoying it because it's so fun. I love it. It is so, so fun. much fun. And I remember you saying that to me. You're like, even if, you know, you get one or two listeners, it doesn't even matter. Like just start. You'll have the best time ever. And now that's what I tell other people who are like, I'm wondering if I should start a podcast. But you were yeah. just so generous, even though there was no reason for you to do that. I'd already done your interview. Like you were just so kind and giving. And I always think, you know, in so many times in your life, like you just mentioned, finding something that I, you know, love and I'm good at without your push in the right direction. I couldn't have found that because I wouldn't have no. known because I wouldn't have started interviewing people. And so I think in anyone's path, yeah, you know, we go through all the different twists and turns and people and pivotal moments and that email and your response was one of them for me. So thank you so, Amazing. so much. Oh, received. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a full circle no having kidding, you right? on the show now. <laughs> and, and you know my book. <laughs> and your book. Oh my gosh. I am so, so thrilled. But as you know, the way I've developed the whole structure of the show is that mm-hmm. Because people often encounter you now knowing so much about mental fitness and strategies to live your best life and have now become a published author and have an incredibly successful podcast, it's so easy to assume that you were born enlightened and that you always <laughs> knew you would end up here and that, you know, you've, this was a logical pathway for you. But I, I definitely want to dive all the way deep into the book and I still, I also can't believe that I'm in it. It blows me away. I just want to cry. But <laughs> Which we will get to. Sure. But I think what I love most is tracing back from like childhood mark and filling the gap of between, you know, the first time you ever thought about having a job and what that would mean to the job you're in now. There's always so much stuff in between that often doesn't make sense at the time and that it never follows a linear path. But I love reminding everyone that if they haven't found their pathway yet, you know, most people don't straight away on their first or second or even third goes. And I like you've done so many interesting but totally unrelated things. So definitely want to cover that. But first, Icebreaker. Yeah. yeah. What is the most down-to-earth thing about you? Ooh, down-to-earth thing about me. I think just I do 
I, I really try to be as present as possible. And presence comes to mind right now because it's something that I've been working so hard on, especially with everything going on that, you know, just, you know, being here with you and, and experiencing your energy and, and, the, and this conversation and the questions and all of that. I mean, for me, if I can offer that in all experiences, and obviously I'm not perfect and I, I fail at this all the time, but that's the thing I, I hope people leave with and think, wow, that was, you know, he was really present and I feel more energized after being, you know, with him, for example. I mean, that's, that's my ultimate goal. I don't care what I'm doing. If I can leave someone more energized than when they came in, then that, that puts a smile on my face. Oh my gosh, you absolutely do. And it, like for people who can't see the video yet, which will come out eventually, but Mark and I like are just out smiling each other all the time. Like you've never seen two more smiley, excitable people. And we're just bouncing off in this like weird circle of joy. It's so exciting. We're going to be sick of us. Stop smiling. But also you're Canadian. So you're automatically like the kindest, most loveliest person ever. That's funny. I love it. Also, did you say you had Thanksgiving last week? Do Canadians have a different Thanksgiving? We do well. I mean, I'm only aware because the one that's always made such a big deal about is the is U.S. Thanksgiving. But yeah, ours was this past weekend. So I don't know if we're the only country in the world that has it at this time, but it's always been this date. Wow! You're probably thrown off. Like, what is he? Is he mixed up with his holidays? I actually wasn't at all because I have no concept of time at the moment. So I was like, yeah, it's. I mean, it's probably Thanksgiving time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then I was like, wait, I thought Thanksgiving was in November. But it's so funny. That's so Canadian of you to be like, oh no, this is Thanksgiving, but there's a there's a different one. But that's not that's not thank- that's, the, that's US the US Thanksgiving. One, yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I treated that one as a default. Absolutely not. Canadian Thanksgiving is is the default Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're way to tell us about young Mark. What were you like as a kid? Oh. What were you know the things that really lit you up before any of those? societal conceptions of things started to kind of blind your judgment. What did you think you wanted to be and what was your childhood like? Oh, it's funny. I mean, I, I try to think about my childhood. You, you know, I'm in a men's group, so so, it's, so our childhood comes up often enough in, in that work. And, you know, a lot of the guys in the group, there's, you know, unfortunately there's, there's trauma and there's things like that that they're working through and processing. And I just, I don't have that. So I feel really grateful obviously i was i was brought up in a really loving household and supportive parents and whatnot but raised and born and 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 lived and went to university as well in like a really small town and it was just you know hanging out outside playing doing things like basketball i was big into skateboarding and in the before university and whatnot and just you know having a good time with with friends and it wasn't until I can't remember what age I was, but definitely before university and whatnot, that I would I'd spend the summers going to the city, which for any Canadians or anyone that's been to Canada, you'd probably recognize Toronto. That's our biggest city in the country, which is about four hours away from where I grew up. And I would spend the summers there, or at least a month there with an aunt and uncle. And that was my exposure to 
like the business world and traffic, <laughs> right? The big smoke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I remember coming in and be like six or seven lanes of traffic and just thinking, wow, like this is where things are happening and just being so <laughs> excited about congestion, essentially, which is ridiculous, <laughs> right? But, but it, it opened me up to this, this whole other world that I just wasn't exposed to. And that's, I think, gave me a little bit of the, you know, the, the curiosity around business life and marketing and things like that, which is what I ultimately went to university for. And then ended up moving and I, I lived in, in Toronto for quite some time with completely different opinions of traffic, obviously at an older age. <laughs> Congestion really wears off, you know? Exactly. It just wears it's, off. <laughs> it's, it's not ideal, but that's essentially the, the, the path that got me into that space. And, and then I spent about a decade in the corporate world before jumping into what I'm doing now, which none of this, I mean, I never would have imagined being an advocate for mental fitness or mental health. Like I didn't even really know what that stuff was, frankly, at that age. Definitely never thought I would have ever had a, you know, any type of podcast or was interviewing people or for sure writing a book. The closest I've ever come to having excitement about writing, I, I was young and I had, my parents had this old typewriter from, I guess, when they were kids. And I remember finding it and pulling it out and just slapping on the keys. And I was trying to write some sort of, you know, fictional story with ultimate failure. Like it sucked. It, it was nothing. But I remember thinking, I'm like, wow, I'd love to write a book one day. And it kind of stopped there. And here we are. So. Wow. Oh my yeah. gosh. I think looking back at the different chapters and like the times that you spent in each thing. It's so interesting that that decade of corporate was so different. I mean, I expected like coming into your life now that there would have been a much earlier interest in health or sports science or, you know, anything kind of related, but it was sales for biotech and pharmacy and then business analyst and then brand manager and marketing and like such a different world. And I think sometimes people look back at chapters that don't make sense and, and lament the waste of time that that was. But I'm sure that that 10 years maybe doesn't connect now, but if you'd tried to start what you're doing now 10 years earlier, yeah. you couldn't have. Yeah. There is a small connection that had nothing to do with the work I was doing. Because when I came out of university and I think I had a couple jobs in between uh, starting in, in, the, in the pharma world, but I was, as you mentioned, I was hired in sales. And I remember at that time, they would hire people in like batches, essentially. And then you would go to, in this case, we, we were, were flown out to Montreal and that's where the Canadian head office was. And you'd spend four weeks at the, at the head office doing all this training, depending on your degree and kind of what you needed. And, but it was at that moment where I remember thinking, well, I'm in a sales role. We're all being trained essentially in the same way. Like how possibly could I stand out if we're, if we're going to, and, and I'm in a sales role. So like, I mean, there's obviously motivation to the bad, like trips and awards and things like that. Like, how could I stand out? And that's, that's what started the journey into mental fitness. I didn't know that at that time, but I got up earlier and I started read, reading positive things. And then all of a sudden that positive content you know, I remember at that time I was reading like Success Magazine and, and I was exposed to people <laughs> like Tony Robbins and Robin Sharma and all these different people. And over the years started seeing, wow, it doesn't matter what kind of content I'm consuming in this space, 100% of the people have some sort of reflective practice. 
and I was gravitating towards journaling. So throughout the eight or nine years in that world, you know, just navigating job changes and life disruptions and all these different things, I would get up early. I'd bring in that content. For me, I was gravitating towards the questions that all these people were reflecting on. I'd write those down and then I would reflect on them the next morning in my own practice in relation to where I was at in my life. Wow. I did that for years. Years until getting frustrated <laughs> with the tools. And, and that's where we met was at that kind of junction in my life when I left that world. Oh, that's so fascinating. And it's funny how like really when you look at things, the seeds get planted like so far into the past that you don't realize at the time so what's true. happening. But later when you connect the dots, it's like, oh my God, it makes sense. That started way before I thought it actually did. Yeah. And I was reading that you also did, I mean, there's just so many different cool things that you've done. You were with Photographers Without Borders doing yeah. photography for a water charity in Senegal. Like how did that come about? Yeah. Well, so, and that's funny too, because that's, I would say photography and I, I picked up photo photography when I was in university. That's probably the moment that introduced me to mindfulness without even knowing that that was happening because I mean, even now I, I take, well, I mean, I take photos with my phone like every other human on the planet, but, you know, that was the first moment where I started noticing the detail in, you know, the shadows or the light or the exposures and things like that. And now, I mean, photography has given me the greatest gift I could ever ask for. I can't go anywhere without seeing the photo or that composition, right? Which again, just allows you to step into the present moment and, and see the detail. So it, you know, it started in, in university and I just, I kept, you know, it's going to self-taught. Ironically, I was following someone by the name of Chase Jarvis, who's what a profile in the book. And yeah. that's how I learned photography because he, he was a, a globally renowned photographer and I was just following all his online, you know, courses and his teachings and stuff like that. And then eventually I, I was, I was exposed to this photographer without borders and it was such a, an amazing opportunity. I, I, I got the company at the time, Novartis, that I was working for to help sponsor me to go. And I took, I, re, I think it was a three-week trip. And we went to Senegal and I went with uh, a, a company called Water Charity, not Charity Water. There's, there's two of them essentially, uh, but Water <laughs> Charity that have the same name. And they needed someone to essentially you know, document and capture all of the projects that they had going on on the ground so that people could see, you know, the, the, the effects and, and the villages. And wow, it was just such, I mean, I'll never forget that experience. I mean, just meeting the happiest people I've probably met to this day that have just nothing, right? N nothing in our sense of the sense of the word, but the, you know, they, they, they're just so grateful for, for what they do have and the sense of community and the smiles, you know, capturing that through the lens was just, I'll never forget that. It's so funny that you say that because so many people, I, I think during our trip to Rwanda, and I think we spoke about this on your podcast, that was the exact reflection I had was the, I expected the reverse reflection of, you know, being overwhelmed by how much we have and how grateful I am for, you know, comparing to what little they had, but actually I mm -hmm. saw like a more pure happiness that I had never seen back home 
just joy yeah. with small things. And I think that's such a common reflection for people traveling to countries like this and expecting to feel like we have so much and they have so little, but actually you get exposed to such a, a deeper gratitude than you've probably ever thought about before. For sure. So interesting. For separating sure. Separating happiness from stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what I really liked about the the objective of the trip was that, you know, because we're used to seeing kind of the world vision style photos, you know, and and, and usually, at least back in the day, at least when I was growing up, there, you would see a lot of the sad faces and the, and the strategy was was around, you know, the, the, the sadness and helping people out of that, which is which is valid. But the, the charity that I was going over with wanted to show the happiness that was being brought because of, you know, a, a well that was dug or some sort of water system that was set up. So it was just, you know, kind of a combination of two really magical things to be able to capture that and, and feel that from these villages. And, and hopefully, I mean, those, those images still live on and they're using them. Hopefully, you know, it motivates others to, to step in and help and, and bring that, you know, that joy and that happiness and that health to so many more people. So it's, yeah, I, I often think about that trip and it's something I'd, I'd love to do again at any moment, frankly. Well, once this world opens up. <laughs> <laughs> it's also so interesting that, you know, those experiences, and I think they're often the ones that aren't related to a career you want to have forever. Like, I'm not sure whether you, you wanted to be a photographer or thought that that was going to be your full-time vocation, but sometimes unless something directly aligns with our future goal, we dismiss it as like, oh, well, what's that going to give me? Like, it's not towards the ultimate dream. But I think yeah. those activities you do for breadth are actually indirectly more valuable than anything that you could do that's just like immediately clear what the benefit is going to be at the time. How do you feel about that kind of idea of making time for stuff that isn't necessarily productive for your ultimate goal, but kind of also is? I'm being so inarticulate, but yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> no, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and, and I actually experienced that because I remember, you know, I was still in my regular job, which I was, I was quite happy with. I enjoyed the people and what we were doing, but I had this little photography thing on the side that Every now and then I would shoot like a wedding or like some family portraits or something. Like it wasn't, you know, anything crazy in terms of income, but mentally I was trying. I was like, I wonder if I can get this going and then I can go all in on, on the photography because it, it, you know, really lights me up. But it came to a point where I remember just feeling like even thinking like that, or it's probably weddings. Those are the most stressful things to ever shoot with your <laughs> photographer. <laughs> I'll never forget those experiences. It's probably the weddings, but it, it was, it came down to, you know what? I'm kind of, I'm robbing myself of the joy of this hobby and, and this art yes. or this practice that I don't want to lose, you know, the sense of excitement and like the wonder and everything it brings to me. So I, I actually stopped you know, focusing on, on essentially creating another revenue stream for me and my family and just, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot casually. And then like our phones really were upgraded. And I remember just thinking, you know, we are always have a phone, but I'm, I'm also still not going to give up the, the practice of slowing down and, and, you know, not just taking a photo to take a photo, but like actually framing something, even though I'm not using a Canon or a Sony or something like that, I'm using my phone, but be, be present and conscious with the practice and keep that up. Mm -hmm. and, and that I still do 
to this day. And it's, it's something I'm super grateful for. I love that you brought up the idea that sometimes commercializing a passion kills the joy in it. And, you know, so often yeah. people kind of get wrapped up in this idea of you have to love your job or you have to do as a job the thing that you love. But for many people that actually kills what they love most about it, like adding a brief and a deadline and financial expectations. And it's actually okay to seize your yay in a way that is totally separate from income. In fact, sometimes that kind of allows you to to maintain the joy. So yeah. anyone listening, you know, give yourself permission to decide I don't need to do it as a job. It's okay if that's on the side. It's so true. And it's okay if you you don't get that same level of yay in what is your income producing activity as long as you're finding that joy sort of somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. So then we get to nearly a decade after you graduated, 10 years later that this gigantic pivot kind of happened. Did it feel like <laughs> yes. that at the time? How did it happen? Like I think sometimes also you look back and go, wow, that was a really pivotal like sliding doors moment. But in the moment, maybe it happened and unraveled in tiny steps. Like how did Keo begin? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting, interesting way to think about it because it definitely now in retrospect, looking back, looks like and feels like a massive pivot. And it, and it was because I really do feel like other than you know my core values and whatnot, I, I feel like a completely different person than I was eight or eight or ten years ago. And what essentially what transpired was again like that nearly a decade of really having a consistent mental fitness practice and seeing that be helpful for my own life. I started to grow really frustrated with the digital options that were available for journaling because I was traveling a lot and I typically would do my type of journaling or reflection on a phone or on my iPad. And at the time, some of the meditation apps were starting to take off like Calm and Headspace and they were picking up steam. So I remember thinking, okay, it seems like kind of the mainstream audience is starting to be okay or open to being guided digitally, you know, in, in at least meditation in that space. But at that time, there was really nothing that existed for journaling to help start a practice. And the way I was doing it was, again, like I'd write a question down and then it started to become so disconnected. I'd write a question down, I'd copy it, paste it into another app. I'm like, this is ridiculous. There has to be a way more <laughs> efficient way to, to do this, right? Especially in that at that time. And that's how the idea for Keo uh, arose. And I, I remember, I'll never forget the email. I, I wrote an email to my brother-in-law who, you know, uh, has been a, a lifelong entrepreneur. So there was a bit of comfort there, I guess you can say, or confidence there, you know, talking to someone that, that's been in that space before. He also had an IT company, which we, we laugh about to this day. That's nowhere near a developer kind of experience. So at the time, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, yeah, he's got you know this IT company. He's, he's doing websites and phone systems and networks and stuff. I mean, he, surely he's got some experience in, in this or can help. And anyway, I just sent him an email with the frustrations and saying, hey, would you like to try building something to see if we can you know flirt with this idea? And, and he said, yes. And so we started doing it and I started mind mapping this app on the side kind of evenings and weekends until eventually, I remember we went to this conference in Montreal. It was a conference called C2, all on creativity, super fun, really awesome experience. And while I was there for the company, I was meeting with people, but then also pitching this concept for the app. And my brother-in-law was there with me. So he was in these meetings. So we were, we were just trying to get a pulse to see like, what would people 
you know, how would they react to this? And he had a designer on his team for, for his other work. So, you know, we didn't have a functional app. We essentially had a mock-up that was, was tappable. <laughs> and as we would leave these meetings, we'd say, it'd be like, okay, Ken, we got this feedback. Can you shift this around? We're going to try another one. And we were just essentially iterating the, the app on the spot. And we got enough validation from those meetings to, to really cause a pause and think, okay, I mean, I think we've got something here, but I knew enough in my own day job that to make that successful, you know, there needed to be a pretty big strategy or plan or some sort of marketing initiative to really get, get this off the ground because no one was doing this in, in journaling at that time. And I knew I couldn't do that and my day job at the same time. So eventually it led to me leaving that, that job in, in the pharmaceutical world and pursuing Keo full time. <gasps> and then growing it to, I think, like 86 million people being impacted yeah, by this wild. idea. Like, what even is that? I don't know yet, but Sarah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like, yeah, the dust probably still hasn't settled on that. But it's so interesting that your background in business and brand management is what really helped launch that with experience and with skills and bringing so much to the table to to like I think at the time you don't notice or you don't realize necessarily how important those skills are, but so much of what you learn in one context is transferable to anything else that you do. So I'm sure that 100%. was a huge part of your success. Yeah, it was. I it, it definitely was because I mean I I was leaning on you know the skill set that I felt comfortable with or what that, or that I had developed obviously over the years working on literally these hundred million dollar brands right and these products and essentially what what i brought over was okay well if we're gonna launch this app you know while we're really frustrated with how long development's taking because that we have zero experience in, we're trying to figure this out we're going through all these dev teams i mean we're not just going to sit back here and do nothing so i started working on building relationships and bringing in you know the right people with their content and obviously you're a part of that right and getting different perspectives in this space and so that when we launched the app, we weren't launching an app to zero people. We already had an audience mm -hmm. and we already had content that wasn't necessarily coming from us, but we had content from all these you know, stunning humans that essentially we were linking out to their work if people wanted to continue down that path. So you know, it seemed to make sense as a, as a collaboration strategy. And then I just made sure from a brand perspective that you know, we were really focused on the language of mental fitness. And, and the reason for that was simple. People just, you know, there was so much talk around mental health, which is you know, unfortunately loaded full of stigma still, right? Mm. And mental fitness was really, you know, that step in, well, I'm taking action just like I do my physical fitness, right? And so it's just like a more of a motivating term, I guess you will. Because for me, mental fitness you know, everything's under that mental health, mental resiliency, mental performance. So it's not about ignoring any factors, but it just feels more motivating and that you have more zest essentially to, you know, take that, <laughs> take that step forward. So I was just really focusing on that. And then the rest of the team, obviously we were doing everything possible 
to make the app look beautiful and very Apple-ish at that time. And it started to get picked up by Apple all around the world. And that's what led to all those app store impressions. Oh my gosh, so incredible. Such a testament to just your creativity and that you were really meant to be on this pathway. And I love the idea that the term mental fitness that's become so closely associated with everything you do elevates your mental health and your like everything in your mental processes to the same status as your physical fitness. Like I think that's another thing that I like about using fitness yeah. is that it's so associated with your body. But and we often don't treat our mind with the same level of care. But I, I like that that word kind of encompasses that whole concept so nicely. Totally. <laughs> well, and I remember Sarah in one of our, you know, when we were trying to raise funding for the app, one of the slides I had in the pitch deck was linked to the physical fitness world and just showing how mental fitness was 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 going to be parallel soon. Like we're getting to that point. And the, the, the image I had in the slide was of People Magazine in I think the 70s. And it was, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? The guy from Baywatch and Jane Fonda or something. And they were, they were going jogging. And some, the caption was something like, we're all going jogging. Everyone's doing it now. So like at that time, it was jogging and exercise outside was essentially <laughs> just taking off, right? So the, the point was, we're not, you know, that's where mental fitness is right now. And this right. would have been four years ago, but just to, to try to show that, hey, now's the time to get on board with this because, and I, I really believe this to this day. I mean, what motivates us and tells us to go into the gym or run or do the exercise are the decisions that our mind's making. So for me, it, it all starts there first. Mm. You've really extended and expanded on that idea in the book, which it's just such a valuable tool, particularly in this you know climate where we're being our mental fitness is being challenged more than it ever has. Yeah. But I also want to weave in a little bit of the the next section is your NATA, so all the challenges that kind of get in the way of your joy along the way. And it makes sense to kind of weave it in here because I think yeah. you've moved from an industry where you have so much experience, you studied for it, you have a degree behind you, and like lots of different corporations and and businesses that you've worked with to back up, you know, if you ever have feelings of doubt or lack of confidence, you you can talk yourself back around by, I am experienced. I deserve to be here. Moving into a, a totally new industry with a brand new idea where not only have you never done it before, but no one has really done it before, but having to put yourself out there with pitches and like investing a lot of money. I think most, you know, brand new business owners struggle more with self-doubt and the mental side of the challenge, then logistically, you're, you can physically figure out how to start a business. It's yeah. putting your head around it. How did you cope in those early days with like the doubt or the fear, the risk and, and the massive change from what you knew, like the comfort zone, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely terrifying. In, in some respects, there's, there's definitely many moments of fear even, even now, but the luxury of being in the space of mental fitness, and especially starting with the app. I mean, I had, and I'm so grateful for this, but I've had literally hundreds of interviews with all of these incredible humans in all of these different industries and different spaces, providing the things that they were doing to keep their mind healthy. So for me, you know, when you're building the business in that space, it's like that classic, you have to practice what you preach. And it was the same thing writing the book. Like I had to really rely on the practices because 
like everyone listening, I'm human as well. And, you know, you fall into these comparison modes and in, okay, well, that app is ranking over here. They did this. How come we can't get that funding? You know, like it's easy to slip into those internal dialogues or those looping thoughts. But again, just flipping back to these mental fitness practices about, okay, if I, if I, you know, prioritize my health, mental and physical, if I meditate, if I bring in some breath work or I do some journaling and boost my self-awareness, then I can catch these moments, pause the narrative, release it or rechannel it and continue forward, essentially. I love the idea of pausing the narrative. It's so valuable to remind yourself that the narrative is something that you can actually you can control, like you can observe it. I think I used to think I had one level of thinking, but yeah. not that then I could have thoughts and value judgments on those thoughts. And that whole idea of metacognition, like what makes us different to any other being in this universe is that humans can think about their own thoughts, which also means that you can stop the ones that are unproductive, which is just like such a big revelation. <laughs> For sure. Well, and then that you can zoom out, obviously, and disassociate with maybe not disassociate, maybe that's the wrong word, but just have enough of a separation that you then start realizing that I am not just my thoughts or I am mm. not the anxiety here. There, there's something I picked up from uh, a meditation teacher, Jeff Warren. He wrote, he wrote a book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, <laughs> which is oh the greatest gosh. title ever. And he, he co-authored it with Dan Harris, who's a, the ABC News anchor in the U.S., and I remember Jeff telling me about this, this whole idea of, you know, when people, when, when you have anxiety come up or if you feel, you know, a depressive state coming up or whatever, fear, uncertainty, whatever those things are, you know, he, he provides labels to those things or names. And it's like, welcome to the party. So anxious Tom just walked into the room. You can come in, we can talk a little bit, but then you're going to have to leave type thing. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, even with the humor of that, it just lightens the situation, right? And it's not anxious Tom like taking over your life and that you're spinning and looping for days on end, if not weeks or longer, right? And then that's when it becomes a problem. But when you can acknowledge it and you're like, okay, thanks, I get it. Obviously, there's something here that I have to deal with or process, but now you're going to have to, you know, grab an hors d'oeuvre and take off. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. I actually highlighted that in the book, that welcome to the party kind of analogy, yeah. because it's such a good way to visualize the idea that thoughts come and go. Like they're not, they don't consume your entire identity. Yeah. They just come in the door and then you can, you know, politely show them the door and they can go all the way back out the way they Absolutely. came Absolutely. <laughs> Everything is impermanent. Yes, totally. So then I think another really big challenge for a lot of people along the way of their journey is like steps that seem like steps backwards or times that things don't necessarily work out the way that you want them to. And, and coming to terms with the idea that, you know, I love quotes that, you know, sometimes like things have to fall apart for better things to come together. And like, what seems like a step backwards, there's always a learning that can propel you forward. So that idea of like failing forwards and in the very early pages of personal Socrates in your intro, you talk about the idea that Keo was like this big jump and this big seizing of the yay. And, you know, for three years, it just kept growing exponentially and felt like everything, you were hitting all these goals, but then confronted this wall of what you felt, what felt like failure, but was mm -hmm. actually just the seeds for the next chapter. Because again, like your joy and your ultimate, you know, 
purpose in life is not static. Three yeah. years t- later, you're a three years different person. So you you might have, you know, things unravel in chapters. So talk us through that whole idea of hitting these milestones and then I know. I mean, that was that was an explosion of my world, I guess, is how I could describe that. Because, you know, just as we've been talking about this massive number of 86.9 million people, which is obviously a lot of app store impressions, and we had hundreds of thousands of downloads as well. So we had a pretty big community in the app. But just as we're we're as it sounds great right now, which it was, we were also falling for that hype. And, you know, when we have these write-ups and these brand features and, you know, collaborating with like Lego and LinkedIn and VaynerMedia, there's this element of almost like false sense of security that, okay, well, obviously if those brands are behind us or we're getting all these, you know, new apps we love or app store of the day that, you know, we have to succeed here. But where we weren't succeeding was the business model, you know, and the financials. And I, I really, I don't doubt that we would have figured that out because we were on the track to, you know, iterate, continue to iterate the product and whatnot. The, the difference though, and I think, you know, it's, it's not, I, I share that because if we would have kept going, we probably would have turned it around. But for whatever reason at that time, personally, I had lost the conviction to continue you know, it was, it was, and that was the hardest thing to accept because somewhere along the way we had spent, you know, a tremendous amount of money and spent a tremendous amount of mental capacity on this project or on this business. And I lost the hope or desire to really push through kind of that messy middle or push through to the other side. And something just felt like, you know what, this chapter, as you say, or this vehicle into mental fitness, which was an app, doesn't feel right for me anymore. And I knew that I was in the right space. So that gave a slight amount of comfort, but because <laughs> everything else was exploding while that decision was being made, it was enough to, to say, okay, you know what, like enough's enough on this one. We're going to, we're going to have to shut this down. And I'll just, I'll never forget, you know, being, I was in a co-working space in Toronto, Canada, and I was looking at that number, the Apple dashboard with all the metrics and just thinking, okay, my next step is going to, is, is delete from app store. And then that's when all the wrong questions started to circulate. Like, how could we fail at such a colossal level? And like, what would my ex-colleagues think? Because I left a job that wasn't one of those scenarios where I dreaded going into work. I mean, it was all, Mm. you know, more so I didn't, I didn't want to regret not trying this. And I just, I I remember the fate, their faces flashing in front of me because I'll never forget sitting at my desk telling people that, okay, you know, I'm leaving in a month essentially. And there was just such (laughs) joy and excitement and like encouragement and, Almost the sense of, yeah, I have ideas like that too. I mean, you're so courageous to go and do it. And then now Mm -hmm. here I am, I'm deleting this business. And the worst part was that my backup plan of returning back to that industry also didn't feel right. Because I, what felt a hundred percent right was this, was this space of mental fitness. But now I just deleted the vehicle that was, you know, keeping me in there. And I have no idea how I'm going to stay here and what I'm going to do next. Uh, we're financially wrecked. We're living in a place that was always supposed to be temporary. 
Uh, so we don't even really like the area that we're in in the house. And we had sold, you know, we had this beautiful condo in Montreal and sold that. And so everything just felt wrong and like it was exploding. And there was just this fear and this, this massive anxiety that was causing me to feel sick, like physically sick every morning during that period until I eventually could go back to some of the practices. And, right. and just the micro moments of tapping into the present moment and deploying as much gratitude as possible, even, even something as simple as, yeah, I deleted the app, but I deleted the app on a laptop that most people don't have access to or don't have in the world. Like small things like that. Just pause that narrative long enough to start asking questions again. And then the question that arose was, what do I want for my life? And that sent me down a new path, essentially. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack in that. I think it's just so important, firstly, to remember this kind of process is such a beautiful example of the idea that, you know, your why is unchanging. You found your why, but the how, I love that you use the word vehicle because I think we get too attached to the how and we think, oh, yeah. if I let go of the how, then I've let go of my why. But actually, no, it's okay if like the method of delivering that purpose changes. The why can be the same your whole life, but the how has to change depending on what your life is doing. And I also think that something that I need to remind myself of always and I try to spend a lot of time on in the show is the way that success and failure is like two sides of the same coin is so inextricably related to perception. Mm -hmm. And so the question I often ask people is like, when you're talking about success or failure, do you mean actual success or failure? Or do you mean that people perceive you to have succeeded or failed? Yeah. And if you knew that you could try something and fail and no one would find out about it, it's like if a tree falls in a wood and no one hears it, did it happen? No, most people are not scared of failing. They don't think that it would fundamentally change their self-worth if they knew no one would ever find out about it. So, so no one's actually scared of failing. We're all scared of people thinking yeah. that we're a failure. And then, then your fundamental life values come into play of like you could have pushed through and found objective success, but what would that have cost you if it was making yeah. you so unhappy every day? So that comes back to that quote that I love of like, if it costs you your peace, it's too expensive. Like it doesn't matter how great the successes and heights you could have yeah. taken Keo to if you turned it around. If you weren't in it every day, like what is the point of that exercise? And you exactly. took control and like volunteered for a really shitty time to kind of break something to put different pieces back together. And I think that's the fundamental like practice that brings joy is being willing to go backwards a little bit totally. to go forwards again. Well, and it just there again, there's this there was this sense of being on the right path, right? And trusting. I knew enough at that point, again, because of all the practices and all the interviews, to to really trust that the journey was going to play out as it should and that I was on the right path. But I needed to do everything possible to get back to a, a healthy mind. And then it, then it just became my full-time job was, was going to the gym in the morning, meditating, journaling, and getting my, my mind as clear and as intentional as possible to then slowly start taking the steps forward, right? And, and, and that took time. I mean, that took, it wasn't a matter of weeks that, that took months. And frankly, I mean, I'm still on that journey in, in, in mm. many respects, but it feels so different, so different. Mm. Right. And, and, and I think what happens too, when you go through those wild moments or those big experiences in life and your work and personally and professionally, 
you're you, you can stack those experiences on top of each other right and then now it's okay well i've been through that i i know i can handle that so now you have this new sense of confidence that okay well sure i'll try this whole book journey or i'll try this or i'll try that right because i i've proven to myself that i can get through it and most importantly that i have the community of friends and family and, and people like yourself that will will support right like we're not in this alone and other people have gone through this and will continue to go through this but you know as long as we keep trying right and we're still curious and, and we're, we're having fun along the way then I mean, it just makes life so much more enjoyable. So much, so much. And talking about curiosity, that is the basis of this beautiful new book. The concept is just continually asking the right questions in life, which I just loved reading it and I'm going to read it many, many times over. There's so much packed into it. Talk to us about the process of writing Personal Socrates and for anyone who doesn't already know, because it's not an automatic assumption that people know who Socrates is and the Socratic method. I only know about the Socratic method because law school, you know, how did the ideas formulate and then how did you choose the questions? It's a beautifully structured book all around key fundamental questions with a different guest or case study or interviewee that encapsulates that idea from, you know, from your personal life to work, to family and relationships, all kind of different areas. And everyone from like Jane Austen to Picasso, and then Samantha Gash, who we all know, Natalie Warner, who we all know, Melissa Ambrosini, who we all know, big members of the neighborhood. And and there's also a chapter on yours truly, who I, I just <laughs> blows my mind, but talk us through the method and the book. Yeah. Well, I mean, ironically, it, it comes straight back to the more I'm talking about it, the more it's becoming apparent. It comes right back to how my practice started eight or nine years ago, which was listening for questions as I was consuming knowledge, whether that was books, podcasts, blogs, and magazines, taking those questions and then using them in my own reflection, which translated into Keo, obviously, and it was the same idea was to share different perspectives and stories to show people that this stuff is accessible to anyone. It's not just, you know, for a meditation instructor or a yoga coach or yoga instructor. I mean, anyone can do this stuff. So, you know, when the app was shut down, like I said, I, I knew I was in the right space. And I knew, especially in this case, that if, if, I was able to pause the scenario that was literally driving me into a deep depression with one question that I have to continue in some capacity to, to expose the, 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 the concept of using questions for mental fitness. Because we're all mm. asking questions all the time, right? It's just a matter, are we asking the right questions? Are they quality questions? Are they well-timed, right? For me, it was... What do I want for my life? That was the big question. And then that, you know, led to other ones which were, okay, well, if that's what I want, like what does an ideal day look like? Who who can help me with that? What projects would make sense? You know, what, what does that look like? And, you know, our questions evolve. Because if I were to ask that same question to myself right now, it would serve as a nice check-in, but it, it's not at the same kind of intensity level as pausing a depression essentially or, or, or avoiding one. So that's where, you know, the realization was made that no matter where we're at in life, no matter what we're doing, we're all one question away from a completely different path, right? Oh. At any point, including the micro moments where, you know, we might be triggered or stressed about a conversation or an email that came in. 
one question around gratitude can completely pause and reshift our mood instantly. So, you know, that was the premise behind the the concept of the book. And I like probably most people listening right now, you know, who aren't, you know, studying in, in philosophy or don't have a, a graduate degree in philosophy only knew that, okay, yeah, Socrates, he's the guy that asks questions. So that was kind of the baseline <laughs> of my knowledge. And I remember I was having a conversation with the now publisher and, and the, the, the founder of that company, Joey from Baron Fig, explaining essentially what the, you know, what my work's always been over the years and, and the concept for the book and whatnot, or what I was writing about. And he's like, oh yeah, the Socratic method. I'm like, the Socratic what? You know? <laughs> and, and of course he has a minor in philosophy and a major in English. So yeah, he got it. But as I started researching and really like digging past the surface of, of, of who Socrates was, it, it became really apparent that this is exactly what's happening because, you know, all the questions that were being left on the podcast and through the app, they're following that Socratic method of asking a big question and then asking follow-up clarity-seeking type questions and unpacking things. And the thing that struck me was that here's a guy, Socrates, literally born in 469 BC and a method that has, I mean, you're ex exposed to going to, to, to law school. I mean, it's literally stood the test of time and we're all using it in some capacity, but we don't even realize we're doing that. And I remember coming across these, these question types that different scholars and whatnot had studied. And I'm like, well, this, this is the reason we don't know we're doing this because who can remember these question types? Like I, <laughs> I'd have to literally open the book to list all six out for you. So I'm like, there's the problem. So is there a way to take the method that's been around that clearly works is there a way to modernize that and make it so accessible to be, you know, applied to our daily lives? And that's essentially what got me all excited. I'm like, yeah, we, we absolutely have to use this as the backbone of the book and structure the book in a way of get clear first, questions around clarity. Then when you're clear and know where you're heading, you know who you're trying to become or, or where you want to go, then you can act and think with more intention and provide questions that can help there. And if you're doing those, those first two steps, the third one almost comes by default or you're really set up because then now you're expanding what's possible or opportunities are showing up because you can see, right? It's no different than if you open up a door into a room and that the room is jammed floor to ceiling with boxes, you can't see the, the back of the room or you can't see if there's a window or another door until you start cleaning up the room. And unfortunately, yes. our minds are like that, right? with emotions and relationships <laughs> and a massive amount of decisions. So if we can clean that up, we just, then we, had, we allow our minds to do, you know, the magic and connect the dots because we have the answers. Oh, They're all there. Totally. And I love even like the cover, the fact that there's a question mark, but it's a key. It's like a question mark in the shape of a key and the whole idea that these questions unlock, you know, aspects of yourself by like, I think often we do, we only search for answers, but it's like, you're, if you're only asking the wrong questions, the answers are irrelevant. You yeah. only, you know, you'll only keep getting the same results. And I think that's the biggest kind of change in my life was asking things that didn't really matter to my ultimate joy and then wondering why I was never getting any further. And it's because I had to change the question, not change the yeah. answer. It's such a, just a, beautiful, simple way to actually change the way fundamentally that you think about things. Are there any like favorite chapters or 
big takeaway things that like, so this is at the time of recording, it hasn't actually officially launched yet, which is so, so exciting to get you at the time where you can <laughs> give a little like reflection on the vulnerability hangover, like how are you feeling yeah. about it? But yeah, do you, do, for anyone who's listening and, and we will share links to where you can sure. pre-purchase it mm. and purchase it, what are some of the, you know, maybe the three biggest kind of aha moments for you in writing it that you think would be helpful for other people? Yeah, well, I, I love that question because... The, what I realized in the process and the ultimate goal of anyone reading the book is that my answer to that question should change as as time goes, as my life evolves. Like the question that resonates we, with me the most now should change because, you know, circumstances change and, and other prompts will then resonate. So the, that's why there's so many different profiles and different prompts so that no matter where you're at in life, something in there should at least pique your curiosity. And it's probably where you should start. And the one that, you know, actually continuing on the theme of what you were reflecting on about like, am I asking the right questions? The one that 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 sparks for me is James Clear's profile and really getting clear on the person you are trying to become or want to become, right? And his opening prompt is, is something around who am I optimizing to become? Which essentially, in other words, uh, you know, translates to, are you climbing the right mountain? So, you know, those are those are the type of questions that I've been thinking about as I'm, you know, expanding out into this this mental fitness world. I'm I'm still on the right path. I, I do believe that, but there's also all these different kind of you know secondary offshoots off the core path, and I I need to be so clear on is that a distraction or is that actually something that's helping me further down the path. So constantly checking in with a question like that helps quite a bit. And then there are other ones like in the third part of the book that are around just possibility. Because often we talk about mental fitness and, and rightfully so from the perspective of handling tough situations, right? And processing tough mm. emotions and releasing and rechanneling and things like that. But there's this whole other world in these practices that are around priming your mind to be more creative and to think and to use your imagination and to really like set, you know, release any type of limiting beliefs, for example. So I'm thinking of a profile like, like Naveen Jain and using language around imagine if Right. Imagine if and just going down whatever you're working on or whatever you want in your life, imagine if this happened and that happened and forgetting all the rules. It brings us right back to when we were kids, right? And you just ask questions and you, you're not thinking about, you know, the results of, of those actions. You're just you're letting your imagination run free. And as adults, you know, when we do that, it trains our minds to also activate that creativity, right? And and really just break down and, and allow for creative thinking and whatnot. So I've been doing a lot of that as well. And it's just such a fun practice, especially right before you go to bed. Because if you do that and you journal and, and let your mind run free, often too, what happens is when you're going to sleep, your mind's in that primed, excited state and you go to sleep, <laughs> you know, thinking or almost visualizing your goals in a way, right? And then you fall asleep mm. and your mind's still working on that and playing out that scene to your movie, essentially. And, you know, you're just getting closer and closer to, you know, whatever you want. And it's different for all of us, obviously, but there's almost no downside to doing something like that. 
right? Totally. So those those are a couple that that spark. And then the profiles where I obviously didn't have the opportunity to interview, you know, the the subjects because they they've passed or they've Picasso, Picasso, for example. <laughs> like that one was really fun because. I was going through those practices almost live on the spot while writing it. Like I didn't go, th- I, I didn't have this whole color practice laid out. And then I'll explain what that is in a minute. Before writing his profile, it was doing the research and seeing, wow, I've experienced Picasso's work, but I didn't realize that he had this blue phase to his work where all of his, you know, his, his paintings and whatnot were essentially in that hue which also linked up to a time in his life that he was depressed. His, his best friend had committed suicide. And then all of a sudden, his, his work shifted into this rose-colored era, which is when he met his wife. And, you know, like <laughs> things changed, for example. So the reflection as I was going through that was, wow, you know, here's someone that, you know, everyone knows about the work. And the idea that he's so well known for paintings in all different types of those phases. It wasn't just, you know, the famous guitarist uh, painting in the blue phase. There are all these other different, you know, pieces of work that everyone knows about, which means that, you know, his, his body of work is what's important. It's not just the one phase. Mm. So that's where the re- reflection was, well, so our lives are the same way. You know, like if I thought back to those early days in sales, like what color would I associate my life with around that time? And I would say, you know, I was probably in like the reds because I was go, go, go and like aggressive <laughs> and want to really, you know, like, you know, prove that I could do this, for example. And, you know, I, re- I just remember I actually went to a Picasso museum while on a, on a trip in that industry in Barcelona. And the objective was just to get essentially get through the entire museum and, and see everything. Versus, you know, two years from now, when I was writing essentially the first draft, I was able to do a virtual tour of that museum. And it was, you know, let's take in one or two of his paintings and really be present with them. And just noticing like the evolution of, and there's no right or wrong answers, but just noticing where you've come from and where you're heading. And that gives you the pause and the opportunity to course correct if you want or write the new chapter, which is, you know, something related to Jane Austen's profile. But it just gives us that opportunity to slow down, come off the autopilot, provide a different perspective from something completely different that we would that we wouldn't normally be reading or reflecting on, and give us the opportunity to, um, to pick a different path. Sorry, I said a lot there. Love the word <laughs> course correct. No, it's so valuable. And I think course correction is such a concept that I think we should normalize a lot more because I think people, you know, feel like if they've invested a lot, like with Kia, if you've invested a lot of time and energy and money and reputation into something, you kind of feel wedded to it. Like, oh, well, I've got to make, I've got to see this through to the end, but why? Like, why (laughs) can't you just redirect at any time? And I think the best thing about the pandemic, and we would never wish it to have happened that way, is that the breaking the circuit and getting off autopilot is automatic. It was forced. Yeah, it's forced reflection. Yeah, I agree. Normally, you would have to volunteer yourself for that, which a lot of people aren't ready for or don't have time for. But this Mm -hmm. way, we've kind of all been forced to do it. So personal Socrates is like the best guide to have in your pocket as you navigate this exciting time to know that the world has thrown all the pieces kind of out the window, but you get to choose the ones that you put back in. It's so exciting. Yeah, I agree. And I promise I I didn't create this pandemic for the uh, the, the launch of the book, (laughs) (laughs) but you're right. It's, it's kind of well-timed and, and, and I do, 
I am hopeful because I, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, people that would never have thought about these type of practices and because of this forced kind of reflection, I just hope that people continue down that path and see that, okay, because people have been answering some pretty big questions that they, they most likely never thought about, right? I'm like, who mm. am I? Or what do I want to, again, am I climbing the right mountain? Because they, you know, they were forced into a pause and some stillness. Like that's what it is, right? It's, it's just like mm. when you have ideas that come up in the shower or on a run. I mean, we're, we're stilling our mind. So just the whole world has gone through that in some capacity, but we don't need to wait for another pandemic or situation like that to inject those moments of, of stillness. And now that people know that what's possible after, you know, going through these practices in, in a moment like that, I, I just hope that you know, we stick with them. Well, I'm so excited for the book to officially launch out into the world. I think it is such a valuable handbook just to to have to guide you through like this whole rebuilding and course correcting for all of us. How are you feeling? What do you, do you have any expectations? Are you like, what do you hope it to do? Do you have any metrics of success or are you just putting it out there and, and wishing it the best, you know, like, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's definitely metrics there, and I mean, I, I'm setting objectives, and I, I say this kind of tongue in cheek because there is a massive difference in the mentality with this project and the app. Whereas the app was very much, <clears throat> how many users can we get in? How do we retain mm. them? How do we convert them? And all of that. And this is, I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, I'd love for as many people to to pick it up because I really do believe in the work and i i've seen questions save lives and upgrade lives so i mean that that's the that's the ultimate goal but my personal goal is to go into this whole launch as clear as possible because i've i'm already starting to see little opportunities here and there and and kind of going full circle to what i had mentioned earlier but i want to make sure that the right ones are the ones that i grab onto and that they can help fuel kind of my overall mission. And I can only do that if I'm not fogged by a million different, you know, launch activities <laughs> and, you know, get stuck in checking Amazon, you know, listings and, and rankings and things like that. Like that's interesting. It's exciting. Obviously, I mean, as we speak right now, the book is in a couple of the top 100 lists, but I know from the Keo days, it doesn't matter. That's I don't want to fall through the hype. Mm. You know, I'll take that, and we we can leverage that. But the the core thing is doing things like this, and like really connecting, and hopefully that there's one question, one story, or one practice for someone on the other side listening to this that can completely change their life. Like that's the ultimate goal. Well, I feel like you've probably already done that without even realizing, but many, many more people will be able to benefit from this book. I'm so, so thrilled. And all the links for everyone listening will be in the show notes. Last couple of questions, and it's extremely difficult. This section is your play TA, which is where we obviously I've run us very short of time for it, but just one quick question about separating your work identity from the things that bring you joy outside of work, just getting that complete distance that you need to keep creative energy and get fresh ideas. I think it's so difficult when your job is something that is related to everyday life because there's no clear barrier between like being a doctor and then going home and not being a doctor. You know, it's like mental mm -hmm. fitness applies to everything. So the ideas and stimulation, yeah. it 
anywhere that you are, it's hard to kind of quarantine yourself. It's such a bad choice of word this year, but quarantine <laughs> your life into little sections. <laughs> but so what fun. do you do? <laughs> yeah, I kind of think of it as like it's play because it's, you know, it's a bit of a juvenile word, but it's what lets your inner child back out. What are the things you do? And I know you have a one-year-old Caleb, so is it just playing with him or, you know, emulating his ways of playing that aren't attached to success or winning or improving or learning? What yeah, do you do for fun? Totally. Well, I, cause you're, you're too humble to ever bring this up, but I'm going to plug some practices out of your profile because I'm using, oh, I'm, no, I'm using, <laughs> I'm using one of your concepts around just work hygiene, which, you know, translates into just personal hygiene and, and, uh, or I should call it wellness hygiene, for example, that, that helps me through all of this and is just identifying the things in, in my life that I know will put a smile on my face and making sure that yeah. those activities, those conversations are injected into the week. So it's not just a weekend thing or it's not just, you know, a vacation at the end of the month type thing. So perfect example. So my little guy, Caleb, now he's, he's actually five now. So it's what? great. Yeah. So why do he, I think he's a one-year-old? Well, oh my god! In the intro, he was one, one and a half when all of the essentially the app stuff had started. So you're you're not mistaken on that. <sighs> so he's been through this journey as well. So I mean, a perfect example is like we're recording this. We started essentially at six p.m. my time. So kind of it's been a full day first and. Just to you know, be able to show up with energy and make sure that I'm present for you. I took 30 oh, minutes before, and we played Lego down downstairs. <gasps> you know, yes. and we just built together and had fun and stuff like that, which just gave me a whole new, you know, zest and and and, and round of energy to come and have this discussion. So, like, just doing things like that. And it's different for everyone. So just figuring out what works. Maybe it's taking a walk or playing with your dog or whatever it is, but injecting those moments in your in your those micro moments, I, I should say, of play micro and excitement. Moments. They go so far, so far. It, this stuff doesn't have to be complicated, Sarah. Like we don't need totally. to wait for a seven day silent retreat to, to like completely <laughs> reset. You know, Horrible. those are great. We can do those things for sure, and I encourage them, but. There's also the daily, you know, the daily practices and 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 yeah. whatnot to to really help. I also think it's so important that like what makes you smile and happy can be weird. Like I'm so yes. yay focused, and it's serial killer movies. Like why don't but <laughs> of course but you don't would question it. Do you know what I mean though? Like yeah. I used to literally suppress them and stop myself reading true crime books because I was like, this is not good for. Like I I worried that I was like pouring negativity into my like mental health cup. But then by yeah. not doing an activity that I had already identified really helps me with the separation between work and switching off. Totally. I was depriving myself. Like don't double think it. Don't like no, question no it judgment. too much. If you if you find something you like doing, just do it. Just do it. Totally. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> and very last question, what's your favorite quote? Oh, What's my favorite quote? I I should have known this because you are the quote queen that <laughs> I, know. I do know. I'd say, I mean, this is actually a final thought in the book, but it just sticks with me. It, it comes up every day almost. The most curious person in the room is also the most present. <gasps> yes. And that, you know, that's in Chip Conley's profile, but it's something that for me, it, it, it just doesn't disappoint because you really can't go wrong with being present. 
And when you're present and curious, I mean, everyone feels that, you know, and you, you feel it, you learn, you know, you expand what's possible, it fires up your imagination and, and the people on the other side can, can also feel that. So yeah, that's something that, that comes up all the time for me. Oh, that's beautiful. And also given that your book is, you know, based on lots of different questions and always asking new and better questions, I think that curiosity quote is such a good one to finish on. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, Huge congratulations you. on the book. Thank you for everything that you've done to literally make this show a thing when it otherwise wouldn't have been. And it's just been so nice to reconnect. Oh, my, my heart is full. So thank you for making the time. It's been such a pleasure. Oh my gosh, what a lovely human being. Mark is one of those people I haven't even met in person but would pretty much cross the world to support. I hope you guys enjoyed. And if you did or you took away something from his endless wisdom, please show him some love sharing the episode and tagging at mchampagne to help keep us growing the neighborhood far and wide. As I mentioned, there are links to purchase his book or to listen to his podcast in the show notes. I can't recommend both more highly. And don't forget our third birthday or third anniversary episode is coming up and I'd love to make sure I'm actually answering questions you have about the podcast, career changes, marriage, adoption, or anything in between. So just DM or email me your questions over the next week and I will get Ange to ask me them in the episode which is coming your way. I hope you're all seizing your yay. 